is The Trip That Changed Me, a podcast about trips that transform. I'm Esme Benjamin, editor of Full-Time Travel. And every other Thursday, I'll be sitting down with entrepreneurs, writers, entertainers, and everyday adventurers to discuss a journey that shifted their mindset, ignited a new calling, expanded their heart, or ushered in a new chapter. My guest today is Pico Aya, the prolific travel writer and brilliant mind behind 16 books, hundreds of essays, and several popular TED Talks. His work addresses globalism, Islamic mysticism, the Cuban revolution, and the Dalai Lama, who I think we can call a close personal friend of his, seeing as the two have traveled together extensively over the years. In his latest book, The Half-Known Life, In Search of Paradise, Pico weaves together travel experiences with the decades he spent in monasteries to explore how each of us can find paradise amid the complexity of real life. In this episode, Pico shares stories and impressions from Iran, a place he's been fascinated by since he was a boy and which defied his expectations in the best possible way. No introduction from me could match this quote from the man himself, so I'll open with Pico's own words. I travel to be upended, propelled out of my comfort zone and confronted with everything I don't usually encounter and never expected to meet. Iran fulfilled these hopes as deeply as anywhere since Cuba. It humbled me and exalted me and showed me in four hours more than I had gathered in four years of constant reading and research. Since then, it has shimmered in my mind as something much less easy to assimilate than the place we see in our headlines. This is such a lovely and thoughtful episode. I hope you enjoy Pico Aya. Welcome. I'm literally so thrilled to have you on. I love your work and I just think you're the most beautiful writer. So it's really a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. No, I'm, I'm really honored and delighted to be here. So you, normally I kick things off by asking, where did your love of travel originate? I think I was really lucky. Because I began traveling at a very young age. From the age of nine, I was traveling back and forth uh, over the North Pole several times a year by myself, uh, between my parents, a new home in California, and my old school in England. And so actually, by the time I was 17 or 18, I was spending every season in a different continent. I remember that year I spent the summer visiting my unmet uncles and aunts and cousins and grandparents in India. And then I went back for the autumn for my last term at school in England. And then I went to California for the winter to work in a Mexican restaurant. And then in the spring, I got into a bus and I, with a school friend, bumped all the way through Central America and South America and flew back through the Caribbean. So really, by the time I'd arrived at college at 18, something in me sensed I was going to learn much more on the road than in the classroom. Wow, you've really been everywhere and lived all over the place as well. <laughs> where do you think of as home? Uh, very much where I'm talking to you from now, Japan. And people are often surprised about that because I've been here 35 years on a tourist visa. I speak very little Japanese. To the horror of my friends, I don't eat much Japanese food. I certainly don't wear Japanese clothes. And yet in some mysterious way, it feels absolutely home. And that I think the way that you will sometimes step into a room, be surrounded by strangers, and you'll meet one stranger and you feel you have a connection with her. Somehow you know her better than your closest friends or your family. And the minute I set foot in Japan 39 years ago, that's what I, that's what I felt. 
I love asking people, we have a quick fire round at the very end of the podcast. And one of the questions I ask is, where were you from in a past life? And it sounds like Japan is the place for you. <laughs> yes. Oh, perfect. Yeah. And in fact, my mother, who's a good Indian Hindu, used to roll her eyes and say exactly that. There's no explaining why you're in Japan, but it must have been a past life. Precisely so. <laughs> I'm almost tempted. Can I ask you what, where you were in a past life? It's Thailand for me. Ah, so that's beyond the fact that it's such an, a comfortable, enticing, exotic place. It's something deeper than that. Yeah, my so my dad is Buddhist, so I think I have a general affinity mm. with like Buddhist countries anyway. Um, mm. But there was just something about it, like even the way it smells, like just something mm. about it felt like instantly mm. familiar and comforting, mm. and I just like mm. fell in love with it immediately. Yeah, I love that. It's it's such a good question to ask, I think. I mean, just opening that door in people's heads reminds them that they don't have to be stuck in the place where they grew up or the place they call home right now. There's probably some deeper home waiting to be mm -hmm. discovered by them. Absolutely. So. <laughs> so let's talk about your latest book, The Half-Known Life in Search of Paradise. I did read that it was born during the pandemic. What were the experiences and the reflections that you were having during that time that inspired the book? Well, Literally, the day that the lockdown was announced in California, my poor mother, who was 88, was rushed into hospital in an ambulance. She was losing blood very quickly. And so I flew back from this little apartment here in Japan where my wife and I live to be with my mother for the next six and a half months. Everyone in the world in those first six months of the pandemic didn't really know <laughs> what was coming next and how long we would survive. And my mother anyway was at the end of her life. And also, of course, um, all of us were staying in one place much more than we normally would. So in that regard, it was a perfect time to think about my 48 years of constant travel, what it had added up to, and what my notion would be of a better life and a better world. And and most of all, I suppose, the question everybody was addressing, which is how to find calm and clarity and some aspect of peace in the middle of a very difficult situation. And I think life is always difficult, but that never precludes the possibility of contentment or even joy. I'm really curious about the idea of the half-known life. What does that phrase mean to you and how does it relate to paradise? I think it has two meanings. The first is, and I'm sure you traveling a lot find the same thing, that in the age of information, I think we know less about the rest of the world than ever before. And if you say, let's say North Korea to us, everybody has one image of North Korea, which is probably the face of the leader, but painfully little knowledge of daily life and 25 million other North Koreans. And I think often the places we hear most about in our headlines are the places we know least about, because we know a little bit about their government or their economy or nuclear policies, but so little just about what is it like to walk down the street in Tehran or, or Pyongyang or Havana even. At a deeper level, I think everybody knows, but certainly the older I get, the more I feel that my life is completely determined by something I can't explain, just like what you felt when you set foot in Thailand. There, there's no explaining it away, but it was as true as any feeling that you've known. And whether it's falling in love or suddenly being visited by a, a virus that shuts the world down or suddenly losing everything you have in the world in a forest fire, as happened to me, or stepping out onto a terrace in Tibet and just feeling uplifted beyond expectation. One way or another, I think everything important in our life is something we can't begin to explain to ourselves. And we hold on to the little things that we cannot and can understand, but it's almost like we're living in a little tent high up in the Himalayas at night. And though 
The tent may have lanterns and um, flashlight. We're surrounded by this vast darkness, and that's really where everything interesting is happening. And I th also, I think I find that the more I travel, the less I can be sure of, and I'm glad of that. When I'm sitting at home, I figure I know anything <laughs> and everything. And as soon as I get off the plane in, in Damascus or North Korea or Tehran, I find I don't know a thing. Is that just down to expectations? I think it's down to secondhand information and screens. In other words, anyone listening to our conversation today could access amazing footage of Iran or even North Korea in the palm of her hand on the smartphone. But I think all the images in the world never add up to real life. And the more you think you may know from having walked around the streets of Iran online, actually, the less you're prepared for not just the smells and the tastes, which you can't get online, but something much deeper that as soon as you arrive, you're confronted with. I, I'm sure if, if you had accessed Thailand a thousand times at home before you went there, none of it would have given you that sudden blast as when you got off the plane, probably. So true. So I've watched a few of your TED Talks before this interview. And there's this one thing that you said that really struck me. Nowhere is magical unless you bring the right eyes to it. An angry man could visit the Himalayas and complain mm. about the food. <laughs> you <laughs> seem to have a worldview that's essentially life is as beautiful as you make it. How do you think that informs your exploration of paradise as a concept? Oh, what a wonderful question. Yes. So, I mean, during the pandemic was the perfect example because nearly everybody in the world was in similar circumstances. And I thought every morning I can either wake up and be really grateful. I'm still alive. My mother's still here. My wife is alive. We're actually living in quite a beautiful place in California. We can take wonderful walks. Or I could wake up frustrated by all the things I couldn't do and was missing out on. I couldn't, couldn't fly. I couldn't see my friends. But to some degree, we have a choice about whether we, how we want to train our gaze and, and therefore how much we want to appreciate what we have or how much we want to project ourselves into what we might have. And, you know, another small example of that was every day during the pandemic, I noticed that if I turned to the news or um, turned to my emails, something in me would feel completely despairing and stripped of hope. 6,000 people had tested positive in Iran or the hospitals in Bolivia were overflowing. Really tragic stuff, but I didn't feel there was anything I in my little life could do about it. And then I would just look out the window and I'd be flooded with hope. And I'd take a walk on the road behind my mother's house and the sun was just rising up behind the ridge of the mountains and flooding the area with golden light. And my wife and I would turn around, we'd see the Pacific Ocean in the distance, scintillant in the sharp sunlight. And I would realize though my parents have been in that property for more than 50 years. I'd never walked to the end of the road, which is just 20 minutes away until lockdown forced it upon me. And so again, I thought, well, I have a choice every morning when I wake up, am I going to look at what really cuts me up, which is often the news? and sometimes quite sensational? Or am I going to look at what opens me up and, and gives me opportunities I would never have otherwise? So it's fascinating you make the connection between my notion of paradise and that sentence in the TED Talk, but you're absolutely right. And that therefore, I mean, paradise has a lot to do with how we look at the circumstances in which we find ourselves, as, as does hell, of course. And I think the pandemic reminded me that most of us have much less control over external circumstances than we imagine, but much more control over internal circumstances than, than we suspect. You know, I've been 48 years now regularly talking and traveling with the Dalai Lama. And I did a couple of events with him during the pandemic. 
And he said, you know, the whole world is suffering. And from his Buddhist point of view, the nature of reality always involves suffering. Why compound the suffering by needlessly fretting or, or getting upset about the fact we can't be in Tahiti tomorrow? <laughs> Life is tough enough already without our intensifying it with our own not so useful ideas. Mm -hmm. I'd love to hear more about the Dalai Lama and the friendship and, and relationship that you guys have. How did you end up getting to know him? I suppose I inherited the friendship from my father. So when the Dalai Lama first left Tibet in 1959, we were living in England. I was two years old. And my father was a professional philosopher. So he was one of the relatively few people who knew at that time that for the first time in history, this great repository of wisdom was available to the rest of the world. Most people then didn't really know who or what a Dalai Lama was. So my father sailed all the way back to India from England and requested an audience with the Dalai Lama as soon as the Dalai Lama arrived in India. And the Dalai Lama never forgot that. He's got an extraordinary memory. And then when I was 17, um, my father took me up to the Dalai Lama's house to meet him for the first time. And although I couldn't really follow what they were saying, I think some door inside me had been opened. So as soon as he made his first trip to the US, a few years later, I went to see him and I went to Tibet as soon as it opened up. And, and nowadays, when he comes here to Japan, my wife and I travel with him literally every minute of his working day. So eight hours a day, day after day, sitting in on all his private audiences, having lunch with him every day. And of course, also being part of his public experiences. And you know, in the context of travel, of course, he's the ultimate global traveler. No Dalai Lama before him had ever left Asia. And what strikes me, maybe two things, is wherever he goes, he's going not as a teacher, but as a student. He wants to listen rather than lecture to the world. And every morning when we step into his hotel suite at 8.30 in the morning, I notice a telescope <laughs> pointed out the window because he realizes that every new spot he visits will afford him a different angle on the heavens. And with that sort of unquenchable curiosity that he has about the world and his scientific nature, he thinks, my heavens, if I'm in Birmingham, England tomorrow or Dusseldorf the next day, suddenly I can see the world I think I know in a different way. I love that. That's so beautiful. <laughs> when you hang out with him, do you feel like you have to say something profound? <laughs> Is there pressure? No, the opposite. And, and you, you probably know that his great gift is for stripping away all sense of formality and making you feel as if he's your oldest friend in the world, even if you're meeting him for the first time. If you were to go into his room tomorrow and you'd never met him before, he'd tickle you or he'd tug at your hair or he'd, <laughs> he'd say, oh, you know, what's so that little, very, very playful. And as a way of sort of saying, I'm nothing special, either Dalai Lama, uh, we're friends, let's enjoy this time together. And even his own profundity is lightly worn. So when I travel with him across Japan, I literally transcribe everything he says in the course of the day. And as he's saying it, it just sounds like almost everyday conversation. But when I go back home and I type it up, I see that every sentence is like a whole kind of lecture in miniature, that there's nothing casual or imprecise about it. And you or I think we're just hearing everyday talk from him. But in fact, there's a huge amount of wisdom there. But profundity, traveling, as you said, playfully. Mm, so amazing. I, I, honestly, if I had a fantasy dinner party, he would be one of the guests, maybe one yes. day. <laughs> <laughs>
So back to the book, I really loved it. I thought each vignette was so absorbing that I didn't, I was almost reluctant to move on to the next scene. I was oh, like, no, wait, I like being where we are, let's stay here. <laughs> but it's really clear that there's one place that struck you really deeply and that was Iran. Yes. Tell me what has always fascinated you about Iran. Well, you're right. It has always fascinated me in that Ever since I was a little boy, I would look at a Persian carpet or read a Persian poem or just see even photographs of tile work in a blue mosque and feel fascinated and drawn to it just for the aesthetic intricacy and the sort of marvel of that culture, very rich and elaborate culture. And I was so fascinated by Iran that 30 years ago, I actually financed my first book by writing a long article on Iranian history, though I'd never been. And then I spent four years of my life reading up on and researching everything I could get about Iran and Islam. And I published a 350-page novel, partly set there, though again, I'd never been. And so when finally I got to Iran a few years ago, I thought, you know, I've been preparing for this my whole life. I know pretty well what to expect. And as soon as I arrived, literally within 24 hours, everything was so much richer and more complex than anything that my research or reading had prepared me for. And I would say, objectively, after 48 years of travel, Iran is the richest, the most sophisticated, and the most surprising culture I've ever been to. And for me in particular, because of that illusion of knowledge I had, and because of all the time I'd spent studying it, it packed a particular punch, being so much richer than my ideas of it. And as you said earlier, than my expectations of it. But it's certainly a place I would recommend powerfully to anyone. And it's funny because I was traveling on an American passport and in the United States, I mean, to this day, I still get warnings from the US State Department about visiting Iran. But I happened to meet a few people who had been there and they came up to me and they said, look, we've really got to warn you. If you go to Iran as an American, you're going to have to be ready for some for two things. Everybody is going to want to be your friend and everybody is going to want to invite you to dinner. There, you know, many people are very English fluent. They're fascinated with America. They have many friends and family living in America. They're sophisticated enough to distinguish between the government and its people. So you're going to be the recipient of a huge amount of attention. And the only reason sometimes that didn't happen to me is that with my dark complexion, people in Iran took me for Iranian. <laughs> so they came and spoke Farsi to me and they didn't register I was a foreigner the way they might have if I looked like Brad Pitt. But still, no, quite a remarkable place. And man, subtler and more layered than anywhere I know, I would say. Mm. Yeah, I was going to say it's on my list of places I really want to visit. It looks so incredible, but it doesn't seem like the easiest place to visit. Is there, what are the rules? Like, do you have to hire a guide to show you around? How does it work? Really good question. So if you go on an American passport, at least when I went, you did have to hire a guide and it was quite expensive. I was lucky because a magazine was paying for it and I'm not sure if I'd been able to finance it otherwise. Though at that, I have a British passport too. And at that time, British people could just travel the way they go to France or Holland. No restrictions really whatsoever. But my British travel agent in the United States told me it was better to travel as an American so long as somebody else was paying. And it was a slightly cumbersome procedure in that I had to get my visa from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Tehran. There aren't shortcuts as there would be for most other places. But at the same time, there were no restrictions placed on me. And I, you're right, it, it wasn't the easiest place to get to. And I remember five days before I was due to depart, actually 
the entire editorial staff of the magazine that was due to send me got fired. So suddenly I had no sponsor, nobody to pay for it. And that same week, there was a lot of tension in Syria and everybody was talking about the US and Iran possibly coming to war over Syria. And so I remember sitting in this little hotel room in Ohio, and I was thinking, my goodness, it's a really expensive trip, and I could end up as an American citizen in Iran when America and Iran are at war, which wouldn't be ideal. And then I thought, well, during the last 35 years, it's never been easy to get to Iran. Probably it's not going to get easier for the next few years. So I should go ahead. And again, I'm so glad I did. Nothing bad happened to me on the trip. And I came away with the deepest experiences of any trip I've been on. You spoke a little about expectations versus reality. So yes, tell me yes. about how Iran struck you on that first day when you got there. Yes, so much to say just from that first day. But so I was flying from Santa Barbara, California, through Los Angeles and Istanbul. And I stumbled out of customs at three in the morning in the holy city of Mashhad. And I was met by my guide, who was dressed exquisitely as for a ball <laughs> in Buckingham Palace. He spoke much better English than I do, because he had been educated at a boarding school near London in the 1970s, uh, before the revolution. And he led me to the car, and we started nosing through these unexpectedly crowded streets to get to our hotel. And my guide started pointing out every passerby who looked either like Mr. Bean or John Cleese. <laughs> and this was not what I'd expected of revolutionary Iran. We pulled up to a luxury hotel, again, left over from before the revolution yesterday by the Beatles was being piped through the lobby. Uh, in one corner, there was a little sign pointing to a mosque in the lobby. But right next to the mosque were these beautiful boutiques selling the latest uh, cosmetics and fashions from Paris. And I went up to my room, which was a fairly bare space, but it had a TV. I turned on the TV and there was Piers Morgan on CNN talking about gun control in the US. And honestly, for all the preparation I'd done, I never even knew that CNN would be available in a hotel room in Iran. And I was so surprised by this, I went online to start emailing my friends back in California. Lo and behold, the internet connection in the holy city of Mashhad was much faster than the one that my mother has in the hills of California. And by then it was, it was almost time for breakfast. So I went down to the lobby again. And for whatever reason, the lobby was at that point crowded with young women the most fashionable women I've seen, uh, in the latest from Chanel and Dior under their hijabs, tapping away at smartphones. I think Iran is the first place I've been, with the possible exception of Beirut, that makes Paris look dowdy. I mean, my wife and I, my wife is sort of in fashion, and we go every summer to Paris just so we can faint at how chic everybody looks. Tehran was, um, the whole of Iran was beyond that in terms of absolute drop-dead elegance. And I went out into the street to see where I'd landed up because it was hard to tell at three in the morning. And I found I was on this broad, absolutely spotless boulevard of high-rises. And so I went across the street to see what they contained. Every single one of the buildings was a bank. So it really felt as if I was in Dubai. Again, not at all what all my years of reading and research had led me to expect of Iran. And truly, every hour of the next 16 days was equally rich in surprises. I mean, I, I could tell you what happened that very first night, <laughs> if you want, but that's a whole story in itself. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm just... I'm fascinated to know like, why Iran was the place that you opened the book with. Like, Why was it so yes. prominent for you? Yes. Well, because our word paradise comes from Iran. And I think through history, 
the Persians, who the majority of Iranians, have constructed these beautiful gardens that literally are the closest earthly replicas we have to heaven. I remember I was in the garden city of Yazd, which, again, I barely heard of before I arrived in Iran. They walked out one evening into the garden in my hotel. And there was the sound of running water, and there were colored lights in the trees. And I was led to a divan where I could stretch out. And a waiter brought me these slices of sweet watermelon and a pot of strong tea. And all around me were these beautiful, dark-eyed couples murmuring. And I thought, my goodness, in all my years of travel, I've never encountered anywhere that's more like a heaven of earthly delights than, than this. And what's also, of course, interesting about Iran currently is that the government has a very strict sense of what paradise means, and it's really the afterworld. And the people who have a fast-track entry to paradise are martyrs who will literally run into enemy guns and give their lives over to the Islamic cause. There's a place in southern Tehran called Zahra's Paradise, and it's one of the largest cemeteries on earth. It's 1.5 million people are buried there. So the government feels that paradise is what awaits the faithful after they've devoted their lives to their God. Many of Iran's citizens, of course, construct their own paradises behind closed doors, and they're very secular, worldly places of sex and drugs and, and rock and roll. And yet both the government and the citizens often quote the great mystical Sufi poets of Iran, who know, as every mystic does, that paradise only can be found within. So I began a book on paradise because Iran seemed to be a place where so many different visions of paradise were overlapping and, and sometimes clashing. And it gave me a chance to see the religious vision of heaven or paradise, the earthly vision and the mystical vision. Yeah, you, you reflect a lot in the book on um, the fact that Iran is a paradise of complications, which I thought yes, was a lovely term. Yes. It's kind Thank of difficult you. to pin down. Um, and it seems yes. like a lot of the places that you really love from Iran to Japan to Cuba have that in common, that quality of being complex and surprising. Yes. So why does that beguile you so much? That quality. Yes. What a perfect perception. You're absolutely right. I think it's as with a partner or a spouse or a friend, you don't want to feel you know everything about them. You want to be sure that they can keep surprising you and that your relationship with them can keep evolving. And your hope is that you will keep surprising them. So you, you couldn't be more right in your notion that one reason I live in Japan is that after 35 years here, I never feel I can get to the bottom of it. With England, where I spent my first 21 years, I have the notion I, I pretty much know how the society goes and I can read its tricks and its codes fairly well. And I, I feel the same with California, where I spent a lot of time. But with Japan, there's always this sense that it's much subtler than my understanding of it could be. And what was interesting to me was that in Japan, as you probably know, it's very impenetrable because people are very economical in what they say and what they express. And in public, at least, people maintain a certain face and they don't give very much away. What was fascinating about Iran was I've never been to a place where people use language so beautifully, including my guide who was with me for all of my 16 days. And yet the more he spoke spellbindingly, the less I knew where he stood on certain things, especially those most important things about politics. So he would spin these beautiful sentences about gardens and poetry and roses and mysticism and history. And he really imparted a huge amount of information. But if I were to ask him how he felt about the current regime or Iran's future, 
he would throw up more words that would give away nothing at all. And that was fascinating to me because I never felt I have a grip on it. And I thought the longer I stay in Iran, the more I will be confused. And a part of me did respond to that because it made it feel inexhaustible. I always feel if there's a place I think I can understand, that's almost the end of the relationship. <laughs> mm. There's no capacity for surprise there, at least in my head. Whereas in Iran, the capacity for surprise was constant, as it is in Japan. If I this afternoon walk down the streets to the supermarket in Japan, I'm sure something will surprise me. And I don't know exactly what's going to await me there. The way I think I would know what awaits me if I was going to the supermarket in, in California or England. And so for me, I suppose a large part of travel is being reminded of how little you know, how much more there is to know. It's like when you climb a mountain, suddenly you see all those mountains that are beyond you uh, that you might not have known about. And, mm. and that's what makes travel like a love affair, a sort of constant ongoing exploration that you can never get to the end of, you hope. Mm, I agree. I think there's something about the novelty. You know, like I read this study about how we perceive time when we travel. Hmm. And the reason that sometimes when you're away abroad, having an amazing experience, when you, you can get to the end of the week or two weeks, however long you're away for, and you're like, wow, that that felt like ages ago. It feels like so long ago that we arrived. Yes, yes, We've done yes, so yes, much. Yes, yes. Yes. So when you have experiences that are surprising or novel, it stretches out time. So I feel like if we want to make the most of our time on this planet, then we should go to more places that surprise us. And so it must be amazing for you living in Japan and having that every single day, these <laughs> moments of novelty and delight. Yes. Oh, I, I love that observation. I'm glad that there's sort of some scientific evidence for it. Because you're absolutely right. When I was 29, I was living in New York City and I had a really good job with Time Magazine. I was living the life I might have dreamed of. And yet I left New York City to live in a tiny room in the back streets of Kyoto, Japan. No toilet, no telephone, no anything. And I think one reason I moved to Japan was exactly what you just described. I thought, Every day is going to last a thousand hours. I'm leading this very glittering, fun life in New York City, but it, it's following a certain routine. Whereas when I go to Japan, it'll be like being on holiday in that way that time really gets stretched out, which is, I think, just what we feel like when we're in love. The beauty of being in love, especially when you're in those first passionate moments, is that the days last years and you've almost constructed your own universe within the universe with its own laws. But certainly each moment seems stretched for a very, very long time. And so, yes, living in Japan, that was my aim. And I think it's really been my experience here. Yeah. And when I go back, you know, I still spend time in California. And when I go there, the days do flash by very, very quickly. Um, as in Japan, they don't. I've taken us on a complete tangent now. I was going to touch on um, what you were saying previously about the surprises of Iran and these sort of hidden codes within the culture. There mm. was a scene where, I can't remember whether it's a guide or a taxi driver, but he takes you on this amazing experience. And then when you try to pay him, he's like, oh, no, no, I won't yes. accept it. Yes. Like, we're just friends. Yes. But you knew that he yes. would try and refuse like three, there was a rule of Yes. Three refusals? Is that what yes. it was? Yeah. Exactly. Yes. I mean, I think because they're very layered cultures, both Iran and Japan have the most intricate forms of courtesy and politeness and rules of social interaction that I've ever encountered. You know, growing up in England, I thought I was quite used to that, but these put England in the shade by comparison. So yes, every Iranian would know that when the taxi driver says, no, 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 I cannot accept money, he's still counting on you giving him money after three refusals. And luckily there, my research 
helped me a bit. But part of what goes with those intricate forms of courtesy is you never can tell the difference or the relationship between what people are saying and what they're feeling, which again is something I grew up with in England and something I live with here in Japan. But in Iran, it was at a whole different dimension. And in fact, my very first day, my guide pointedly said to me, you know, anybody who comes here thinking Iran is an enigma is simplifying things. <laughs> it's much more than an enigma. And he also, then the next thing he said was, anyone who comes here and thinks he knows what's going on is kidding himself. Even we don't know what's going on here. Even the supreme leader probably doesn't know what's going on. So it was just a way of reminding me to remain humble and not to come to any uh, conclusions about anything. And beyond the fact it's a very complex society where everybody is sort of playing chess, all those levels of protocol made it even harder to read. I'm interested to know whether people talk openly about politics there or whether they're quite guarded in how they speak about it. Yes, I was surprised how openly they speak. And there isn't much of that in my book. When I returned from that trip to Iran, I wrote a long essay about the politics of the place, because that was what was on everybody's minds. Unfortunately, it never ran. But it was a lot about how very outspoken people were about the economy, their frustrations with the government, everything. And outspoken in English, because I speak not a word of Farsi, but I just go into a shop and the next thing I knew, the man would be complaining about all the presidents past and present, or telling me about the woman in Australia he fell in love with. And then he had to decide whether his love for the woman in Brisbane would conquer his love for his home country in Iran. All these very complicated stories were suddenly made available to me everywhere I went. I remember my last night in Iran, I was due to meet a woman who was a niece of an Iranian friend of mine in California. And my guide told me that I shouldn't visit their house. And my researcher told me not even to shake hands with a woman in Iran, because that's a violation of protocol. So I was sitting in the lobby of my hotel, and these two women came in in their 40s. And they not only extended their hands, they looked ready to enfold me in a hug. And I said, I'm sorry, I'm not allowed to go to your house. So they said, no, we'll take you to an art center, whisk me off and really told me every detail of their lives. And my sense was that the Iranian people are as sophisticated, at least as their culture, so that, or as their government. So they know exactly how to work around the restrictions of right now and were engagingly unveiled in what they told me. My guide was very veiled because I guess his job depended on that. But the people I met just as I wandered the street couldn't have been less so. And in fact, my literally my first night in Iran, I was taken by a taxi driver into a mosque and there were tears welling in his eyes when he saw a saint who had been buried there for almost 1200 years. And then as we were walking back to his car, he told me how his wife was a Yorkshire woman living in England, expecting their first baby. He had paid a human trafficker $2,500 to smuggle him into England. And for three years, a lawyer and a translator had worked to win him asylum status in England. So he was now an English resident, but he was nonetheless stealing back into Iran every summer to see the mother, the hometown, and the mosque he missed so much. And so there was a dissident who'd risked his life to leave Iran and was risking his life to return to Iran every year. And again, that was 24 hours or 20 hours after I'd arrived. And it exploded all my tidy ideas that I'd had back at home about this is a dissident and this is the government and they're entirely at odds. Um, it just reminded me of a human reality that inevitably was much more complex. 
Yeah, I love that. I felt like it should be made into a movie or something. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> um, how did the recent protests add to this picture of depth and complexity in your mind? I haven't been following them as closely as I might, but I don't think they change anything of what I thought about Iran. Because although I wrote a political article about the place after I returned, the piece I've written in this book, like all the pieces in this book, The Half-Known Life, are meant to catch something about a character of a place that doesn't change. In other words, the ahistorical, unpolitical pieces about some quality that I feel I saw in Iran that would have existed 50 years ago and will exist 50 years from now. So I think there'll always be the conflict between the religious and the secular people. It's such a complex society. There'll always be a, a thousand visions of paradise. And it's been really inspiring to see women leading the current protests, but there have been a series of such protests over the last many years. And as clever as the people are about knowing how to work around the government, the government seems equally clever about knowing how to work around people's protests. So I don't think the protests have changed my sense of Iran, and I'm not sure how much they've changed the reality on the ground there, unfortunately. Again, you mentioned Cuba, and I've been going to Cuba for 35 years quite regularly. And what always strikes me is how, even as political circumstances are changing quite dramatically, the Cuba I meet and the Cubans I meet seem very much the same as when I first encountered them in 1987. In those days, they were uh, protected by the Soviets, and most of the other tourists I would see in Havana were um, from North Korea, wearing little badges of Kim Il-sung on their lapels. But the Cuban resourcefulness, the Cuban spirit, the Cuban way with music and celebration, I think was the same in 1953 as in 1987, and the same in 1987 as in 2023. And again, my sense is that what I was witnessing in Iran was something out of time. And it spoke for that people just the way if you meet somebody when she's 80 years old, you can probably see within her the mischievous little girl who was eight years old. Or I've had many friends now for 40 or 50 years. And at some level, they seem exactly the person I knew when they were 11 years old, <laughs> for better and worse. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned earlier that you were mistaken for Iranian yes. while you were there. Yes, yes. And it made me think about whether, you know, these places that you love are places that can't be easily put into a box. And I think you yes. yourself are also that way, like Indian heritage, mm. Born mm. in the UK, raised mm. in America, now lives in Japan. <laughs> yes, exactly. Do you feel like that helps you to like uh, be a, a cultural chameleon somewhat and make new friends fast when you're in a new place? I think so. It certainly allows me to fade into the background. I'm really lucky that when I'm in Cuba or Indonesia or Iran, I can pass as a local. Uh, I don't stand out as a tourist, which is a great help. I can slip unnoticed into a mosque or many other places. And I'm grateful for my gender. I think as a man, I can do certain things without looking over my shoulder that I might think twice about if I were a woman. And yes, I think the best blessing of growing up with a part of me in three different cultures is that my hope is when I go to Iran, I'm look, not looking at it with traditional English eyes, if there's such a thing, or with entirely American eyes, or with only Indian eyes, but sort of looking at with three sets of eyes, and even to some extent able to choose that set of eyes that can chime best with Iran. And probably Iran has certain similarities with India as ancient cultures, more or less of the East with strong Islamic heritage that would allow them to be able to communicate much more easily than Iran can communicate with England or the US. And I remember when I was in Cuba, or anywhere really, 
people would say, where do you come from? <laughs> and slyly, I would choose the answer that I think would be most useful in that place. In Cuba, if I said I was from India, they would be very responsive because they associate uh, India with Mahatma Gandhi and yoga and all kinds of ancient wisdom. But I also know in Cuba that they were fascinated, as in Iran, with the United States. So in many cases, if they asked, where do you come from, I would say California. And they would be super excited because California was the place that they were dreaming of. And that they very rarely saw people from California in the 1980s. So in those ways, it's a great advantage to be able to choose the home that you present to people. And, and therefore, as you say, to make contact with them and perhaps to make friends more easily than if I were from, let's say, Bulgaria. And I said I was from Bulgaria, they may not feel that there was any point of contact and they may not, they may not have the same interest or attentiveness as if I say I'm from California. Mm, that is interesting. And also being able to use multiple passports, as you mentioned yes, earlier. Yes. It's yes. Really handy. <laughs> yes, absolutely so. And then one of the surprises is, you know, none of this ever stands to reason. So both with Iran and North Korea, which I think of as two of the most hardened enemies, the Washington, I was told by people who knew the situation well to use an American passport, not a British one, which isn't what I would have expected. But these things are all so arbitrary at some level. And in Iran, I quickly saw that they have 500 years or more of bad memories with Britain, whereas they only have, you know, 50 years of bad memories with the United States. So for that reason, because they have a very long sense of history, I'm sure the same is true in China too. America is much less of a threat to them than Britain might be. Hmm. Many of the destinations you take us to in this book are very devout. And I know yes. that you have spent yes. a lot of time in monasteries. Yes. So I'm wondering, like, you know, what is your relationship with faith and with religion? Well, maybe for the reasons that you mentioned, having been born to Hindu theosophist parents in, from India, but growing up in Anglican schools in England and now living in very deeply Shinto Buddhist Japan, I'm a typical 21st century citizen. I'm lucky that I've been exposed to many really rich and deep traditions, but the challenge is I'm not actually rooted in any one of them. But it does mean as a traveler, I'm very keen to learn from every one of them to go to the mosque as soon as I arrive in Mashhad, to spend day after day in the pre-dawn dark walking along barely paved streets in the old city of Jerusalem to go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which moves me to tears, although I'm not a Christian. And to see Jerusalem with the eyes of somebody who's not a Christian or Jewish or Muslim, but is very moved by each one of those, those cultures. So I try to turn it to an advantage. And somebody might well ask me, you know, where do you really belong? Where do you stand? And I might not have a good answer to it. But as a traveler, I think it's a great, great advantage that I'm not excluding any of those traditions. Because I can imagine there might be Christian or Jewish or Islamic people going to Jerusalem who are drawn only to the place associated with their faith, which I completely understand. But I was able to be drawn to the places of all three faiths. Mm, you mentioned going into the tomb earlier. And it was a place that was kind of off limits to you, right, as an outsider. In Iran. Yeah. Yes, yes. And there I was invited by my young English dwelling taxi driver. And I think just because he sensed I had a sincere interest in his culture, and I traveled all this way, really, to learn about Islam. He didn't know it, but I'd written this 350-page novel about Sufism and about Islam. So I was traveling to Iran, really, to learn about that great tradition, and he was eager to try to share it with me. Do you tell people and, that you're a travel writer when you meet them? 
No, that's an interesting question. No. And um, I always travel sort of unofficially. I, I think of myself just as a, every tourist, really. And my real mandate when I go to a culture is just to explore as much as I can the way I would if I were on holiday. And I think writing about a place gives me a little more purpose and more focus and makes me do it more attentively than I might otherwise. But really, when I spend 16 days in Iran or go more than once to North Korea, I'm going just as a tourist, driven by curiosity, and with the advantage that I can inflict my stories about the country on others by writing about them when I go back home. But I, I don't think I even necessarily think of myself as a travel writer. I'm interested to know whether you like gather information and take notes and journal while you're away or record conversations, or if you just have a memory that it's just so clear. I don't know. I don't know how you, the conversations that you have and the details that you remember in your prose is so beautiful. I'm like, how does he remember all of this? <laughs> no, I never would trust my memory. And the main thing I've learned over my years is how unreliable memory is. I remember when my house burnt down, I was in the middle of a, writing a book about Cuba. And I'd been there, I think, four or five times in the last few years, and I really felt I knew it well. I lost all my notes, and so I wrote a novel set in Cuba. And I went back to Havana to fact-check my novel. Everything I remembered was wrong because I didn't have any notes. So this is my iPad now. <laughs> and all I do when I'm traveling is take huge amounts of notes then and there as I'm sitting in the mosque while I can feel and smell and see and hear everything around me. And then, so I take lots and lots of notes very quickly by hand in this little notebook. And then when I get back to my hotel room, maybe two hours later, I write that up in full paragraphs as if I were sending a long email to a friend or a long letter to a friend. So page after page after page, then and there, two hours after I've left the mosque, because if I leave it even till tomorrow, I won't remember it in a tenth as much detail. And because I'm writing about foreign places, it's much too difficult and expensive to go back there. So I have to get it done then and there. Then when I come back to my little desk here in Japan, I face the question of what to do with my notes. And I used to write very much following my notes. Now I try to write more from memory and heart and imagination. I keep the notes on the other side of the room when I'm writing. And I try to follow what moved me most about my trip to Iran. And I follow that thread as I write. And then if I need to know whether there were seven courtyards there or six courtyards or whether the guide was wearing a yellow shirt or a blue shirt or whether it's nine o'clock in the evening or seven o'clock in the evening, I can turn to my notes to get it precise. But I'm following something deeper inside me than my notes as I write. But without the notes, I would feel totally helpless. And as you say, memory Memory is a form of fiction, really. It distorts everything. And if, if six of us were listening to our conversation and were asked to write a, an account of it, every one of those six accounts would completely differ, even though we're listening to the same words being exchanged. Mm, it's quite frightening, really, when you think about it, especially <laughs> the misunderstandings that can happen between people. Yes, yes. Yeah, we all remember things so differently. We really do. Well, okay, so closing question. How did this trip to Iran change you and the way you look at the world? It humbled me. It excited me. It reminded me, even if you think you know a place and you've been reading about it for 30 years, you're endlessly going to be surprised by it. It cut through all my, the simple ideas I had about that place or any place when I'm sitting at home and I see them only in terms of the headlines or right and wrong or right and left or black and white. Uh, and I suppose it just quickened my appetite 
for the world. And I thought, if I can be so surprised by a place that I've been researching for so long, I'm certain to be surprised by everywhere I visit. And the world will always be half known. And that's the delight of it. And that paradise can be found in the half known, that paradise doesn't belong in the place you know entirely, because that's probably a form of death. Paradise belongs to that space that's connected with intimation and imagination and something you can't put your hands on, that, that shimmers somewhere between fact and fiction, that lies in the half understood. And so I'm, I'm very grateful that I don't know as much as I think. I remember when I was growing up, I was a know-it-all. I was so proud about feeling I was on top of the world. And now I'm so delighted. I'm at the bottom of the world and I don't know a thing. And, <laughs> and the world has much more interesting ideas for me than I have for it. And I'm, I'm the grateful recipient of life and its many surprises. Well, we are grateful that you are writing about all of your experiences and travels. It's so amazing. And I'm delighted to discover that you speak really similarly to how you write. That's quite oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, well, I'm so happy. I'm 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 so happy to to hear your voice too, because um that's a form of home too. I don't know if you find that, but you hear a voice that sounds like it comes from pretty close to where you grew up, and instantly it opens something up in me. I mean, I hadn't heard your voice before. Did you grow up in London or near London? Bristol, Southwest. England. Not very far. Yeah, Not very exactly. Far. I mean, God, no. in the US, you know what it's like. Everyone just drives for like. <laughs> Like yes, nine hours is yes, nothing. Yes, the UK yes, is so tiny yes, you get from top to yes. bottom in like nine hours. So yeah, very close to London, really. <laughs> yeah, because I, I knew you lived in, in Brooklyn, but as soon as we began speaking, I thought, here's someone I can understand and who can understand me because <laughs> Bristol to Oxford is probably less than a hundred miles or something. So we're almost <laughs> we're almost from the same place. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much. Where can people find more of your work online and just read more about you and what you're doing? I do have a website, picoayajourneys.com. So I think there are about a hundred old articles of mine about every corner of the world that are there and also news about where I'm going. Okay. What's the one thing every person should experience in their lifetime? Tibet, because it's the most moving place I've ever been. It made me feel as if I was not just on the rooftop of the world, but on the rooftop of myself. And even though politically it's so imperiled right now, I think the spirit of the Tibetans is stronger than ever. And although I've been to many other beautiful places in the Himalayas like Bhutan and Ladakh, there's something about Tibet that can't be re reproduced anywhere else. Uh, what do you never, ever travel without? A pen and a notebook. It is pathetic how completely addicted to those they are, but they're my tools for navigating the world. And without them, I feel absolutely helpless as if I'm missing a limb or two. What's the fastest way to experience the true nature of a place? Walk. So whenever I go somewhere, I walk around a place for the first 48 hours as much as I can. It's like meeting somebody for the first time and you want to ask her lots of questions to find out about her life. So I want a place to introduce itself to me. I just want to hear it and see it and smell it as much as I can. And I find after about 48 hours, ideas begin to form in my head. And after that, I'm not seeing the place with the same freshness. I'm only seeing what corroborates the idea I have. Oh, Prague is this kind of place. So I only register what conforms to my notions. But those first 48 hours, I'm wide open. And when I go back to my desk and I start writing about a place, I actually find even the description of my initial journey in from the airport to the city is the most alive. And that's when um, I'm really wide open to a place and it's wide open to me. 
Oh my God. I always say that my favorite moment is when you're getting a taxi from the airport and you're just watching. Oh, it's the best. And then you do get the sense of the place and you can see all the street life and you start to really get a feel for it. So I love that you said that. Good. Um, If you could teleport anywhere just for the day, where would you go and what would you do? Well, Thailand, which you mentioned before, is a very bewitching place. There's nowhere that's more comfortable. And yet we've spoken about places that remain outside one's grasp. And I still think there's a texture and there's a history and there's a kind of exoticism about Thailand that that's authentic. It's never really been colonized. And so it's this wonderful blend of very efficient. I think the hotels are among the best in the world and the service is as good as anything you'd find in Europe. And yet there's always, as you said, in the smells, in the lanterned alleyways, in the rain, in the, the spices all around, there's something beyond our experience that's very enticing that needs you further. Love it. What's one book, podcast or movie that you would recommend to stay entertained on a long journey? I was going to say The Sheltering Sky for any traveler, either the book or the film, because it's about going to a deeply foreign place and being almost consumed or possessed by it, being led out of the city after dark as the sun is falling and you're in this huge space that you can't begin to make sense of. And that's the delight and that's sometimes the terror of travel, but both the book and the film catch it perfectly. And finally, where is next on your bucket list? Well, I don't believe in bucket lists. We've spoken a little about expectation, and I think nothing is so fatal to a trip as having expectations of it, unless the expectations are overturned within the first 24 hours, as happened with me in Iran. But there's no shortage of places I would love to go to. And for example, Saudi Arabia, which has opened up quite a lot in recent years, and which I never expected to see, would be fascinating for me to visit. And that speaks to my sense that a place doesn't have to be pleasant to be interesting. I'm not looking for beautiful places often because I I live in a beautiful place, Japan, and my mother until recently was living in a beautiful place in California. I go to places that are going to be intriguing and confront me with something I could never see at home. So that's the reason I've returned to North Korea more than once, because whatever is going on there belongs to a different planet from the planet I think I know. And my suspicion is there'd be things in Saudi Arabia too that are utterly foreign to me and therefore expand my sense of what human reality is all about. All of those answers were phenomenal. Well, that's so nice. I mean, I I don't want to be embarrassing. I was going to compliment you because I I think it's interesting. It seems like we travel with something of the same spirit in many ways. And so many of the things you say absolutely put the finger on why I travel in ways that doesn't often happen. Like when you said about Cuba, Japan and Iran as all being those unknowable places, I never exactly thought about it before, but that probably you can tell now, as I've spoken more, that's exactly the reason that I leave the world I think I know for the world that I will never know. But um, no, what fun it's been to talk to you. And I'm so glad that you're sharing the spirit of, of travel with people. Oh, across, thank you. Across the world. It was such a pleasure. And I'm glad we could make it work Japan to Brooklyn. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> By way of Bristol and Oxford. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> thank you for listening to this week's episode. I hope you liked it. We'll be back in two weeks' time with more inspiring travel stories for your ears. In the meantime, you can learn more about us by visiting fulltimetravel.co or following us on Instagram at full underscore time underscore travel. If you have a story you want to share on the trip that changed me, drop us a line. And please be sure to rate, review and follow so we can keep this adventure going.